Well, good morning. It is good to see uh, some new faces and some old faces as well. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, please don't run away after the, the service. Hang out a little bit afterwards. Uh, I'd love the chance to greet you. And as we turn our attention to the Word of God, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 13. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, two whole chapters. Uh, so we'll be reading big chunks uh, as we go along. And it's worth saying that we're in a section, in the section of Deuteronomy that works through uh, each commandments, applying each to life in the promised land. So today we've got the second commandment. But before we dive in, let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you that we have the privilege of coming uh, to hear from your word. Lord, as we uh, look at your word, we ask that you would uh, reveal your son and your gospel to us, that we would worship rightly, that we would worship in spirit and in truth. So Lord, this morning, uh, be with us, uh, transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Which point, the parent who truly knows uh, and understands the best way to do all things at all times, let's be honest, right, um, says something to the effect of, well, my house, my rules. And from there, there's generally lots of shouting, maybe some tears, lots of hurt feelings that happen because the child doesn't want to do it that way, but the parent does. So classic interaction, pretty classic. I see children looking at parents, parents looking back at children. This is great. Right? But that happens between us and God all the time. Right? He's got a lot of rules, and sometimes we feel like those rules are dumb or pointless or mystifying. And so we try to do things our own way, and usually it doesn't go great for us. Because he's God and we're not. Funny how things work out here, right? But uh, for this week's passage, we're going to see that worship in particular has to be done according to God's specification. So let's start by reading verses 1 through 14 of chapter 12. There's a lot of words. Buckle up. Try to pay attention because this is God's word. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place of the Lord your God of all your tribes to put his name and make his, make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, your vow offerings and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in your you and your households in, that, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. 
But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that was, is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Okay, it's a lot. But it seems relatively straightforward. The Israelites were to destroy the idols of the Canaanites, but not just that the Israelites were to destroy the idols themselves, but also the places where the worship was held. Did you see where these places of worship were in verse 2? On the high mountains, and on the hills, and under every green tree. So, everywhere and anywhere, right? So, but God is clear that the Israelites are going to be different. Look at verse 4 and then verse 8. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You shall not do according to all that we're doing here today everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. You see, God is saying, my house, my rules. Worship happens on my terms, not yours. You have to worship whom, how, and in particular, where I say. And the where is going to be particularly difficult moving forward for Israel because they rebuild those high places and they continue to worship uh, the bales and uh, uh, idols moving forward. And this is where a lot of people will say, why is God so exacting in his rules for worship? Why can't I just worship him wherever and however I like? What's wrong with worshiping him in the way that suits me best? After all, I'm giving him worship. I'm giving him glory. Why does he care as long as I worship him? Doesn't the, isn't the who much more important than the how and the why? But I think what we've forgotten is that we've forgotten that we're sinful. We've forgotten that, the one, that worshiping the one true God isn't just something that we can do. First off, it's not really what we want to do in the first place anyways. Why? Because we're sinful. We desire ourselves. Sin shows a deep-seated and foundational rebellion against the Lord. And so we don't want to worship God, and we will, we will go to great lengths to disguise and justify substituting false worship and improper worship for what we ought to be doing, which is true worship. But furthermore, this, this attitude re reveals a foundational perspective that runs counter to true worship. You see, worshiping our own way reveals a deep-seated desire for ourselves. A person who is wholly and completely devoted to the Lord, loving him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, doesn't care about his own desires. He simply wants to do what the Lord wants. That's the whole point of the first commandment being first, right? 
We want what the Lord wants. And if he wants us to worship in a specific way, in a specific place, at a specific time, in a specific manner, wearing the specific clothes, we're going to want to do that. Why? Because we want to please him. But what we really want is to worship for ourselves. And that's why we do things according to what is right in our own eyes. Nothing's changed since the garden. We're just as self-oriented as ever, seeking to supplant God in every way, in every place, particularly in worship. And then there are practical considerations. Why we can't just do things the way we want. Remember, worshiping the living and holy God as sinners is very, very, very dangerous. Think back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 when Moses is recounting receiving the law at Mount Sinai. The mountain, the whole mountain is covered in smoke and fire and cloud, and the Lord spoke with a loud voice out of it. And what do the people say? They rightly say, this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Worship of God is meant to bring us into fellowship with him. Worship is meant to bring us into his presence that we might glorify him and enjoy him. But sinners, they die in the presence of God. Sinners die in the presence of God. Why? Because they're sinners and he's holy. And so thus, the rules are mainly there to protect us to protect us from idolatry and false worship, which leads to judgment and wrath, which sort of seems pretty obvious, but it's also to protect us from the wrath that comes from sinners violating God's holiness, being in his very presence. And this is why there were clearly defined areas between the people and the holy of holies where God's very presence resided. But these rules aren't just sort of arbitrary restrictions, but in fact designated avenues of safety for sinners to approach and worship a holy God. And so remember, God didn't have to let Israel or sinners at all like us come to worship him. Think about what sinners like the Israelites who grumbled throughout the wilderness and refused to enter into the promised land. Think about what they deserve. They deserve, along with the wildly sinful Canaanites and with wildly sinful people like us, they deserve and we deserve to be wiped out on the spot by a holy and righteous God. That's what we deserve destruction now immediately but yet god doesn't and didn't do that but because of his great love and mercy and his faithfulness to a gracious covenant made with sinful people he enables us to worship him he enables us to come to him and so god regulates our worship not just to regulate it but so that we can worship in the first place you see he is unapproachable he is unapproachably holy, not because of who he is. I mean, he is holy, but because of who we are. He is worthy and we are not. And so the problem isn't with him, but with us. The rules aren't arbitrary burdens, but rather avenues of grace that enable us to worship at all. And this is why obedience to the Lord's rules about how and where and when and whom and all of that brings about rejoicing. When we worship God's way, we get God. We come into his presence. 
But when we worship our own way, we get a God that is made in our own image, which is no God at all. And so his ordinances enable us to worship, which in turn enables us to have joy. And so we often look at the rules of the Bible, the commandments, as if they stifle life and freedom. I have to do this, 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 and this, and this, and not this, this, and this, and this, and this, and it just sort of feels restricting. But I think that life, we think that life is found in independence, where there are no rules. But truly, life is found in dependence on him and in submission to him. Why? Because it gives us an avenue to be with him. But you don't have to take my word for it, that these rules are for us, not just given to us. Let's look at verses 15 to 28. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God has given to you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns a tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite which, who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God that, in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in, in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you and, said, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire if the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, all that, uh, that all may go well with you and your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices will be, shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So I love that Moses was talking about worship and proper sacrifice and then smoothly transitions to, into talking about eating meat because it makes me hungry and it makes me think about eating a good steak and it's awesome. But back then, eating meat, eating meat back then was reserved for religious rituals as according to Leviticus 17. Animals suitable for sacrifice were reserved only for sacrifice and offerings. And so only after the meat had been offered to the Lord could it be eaten, and, only, uh, and then only by those that were ceremonially clean. So meat was a pretty rare sort of treat. And this restriction was made because maintaining flocks and herds suitable for sacrifice, lambs, uh, and oxen and all of that would have been really hard in the wilderness. It's called the wilderness for a reason, right? And so the Lord placed restrictions on the slaughtering of these particular animals 
to ensure a supply of suitable animals for religious purposes. They need to be able to sacrifice and deal with their sin, and so the Lord needs to make sure that there are animals available to deal with said sin. So in a sense, it was like a wartime economy. It wouldn't do to eat through your supply of sacrificial animals, so the Lord just said, don't do it. But as verse 20 makes clear, they're not going to be in the wilderness anymore. They're going to be in the promised land with him. And they're going to be living stably in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so it was expected that the herds and the flocks of cattle and sheep were going to sort of increase dramatically or exponentially. It's going to be, there's going to be plenty for everyone. And they've been given rest in the land. And so there would be more than enough to cover the sacrificial needs and have animals left over. Plus, people weren't going to be living near the designated place of sacrifice. If you're living at the top, uh, top of the territory in the northern part, it's going to be really hard to get to Jerusalem. Right? It's a big territory, and so it might not be practicable to get from where you are to the, to the temple and then back again. And so it would have been really burdensome to really tie eating meat to the, the sacrificial rite. And so it was time to release the restrictions. But do you see that the restrictions were made for the purpose of ensuring that worship could be maintained? Do you see that the restrictions weren't simply to deprive people of the joy of a good steak? But it was in fact there to protect their worship that they might be with the Lord God Almighty. But even when they come into the land, they can't just eat like hedonists once they hit the promised land. Their freedom was still tempered by other considerations and responsibilities. First, they couldn't forget their duty to the Lord. That's verses 17 and then 26 to 27. They still need to reserve enough animals for the necessary sacrifices and offerings. They were also to give the first fruit and the firstborn to the Lord as well. And so these portions belong to the Lord. So they just can't eat whatever they want in such a way that nothing was left over for sacrifice, which basically means they couldn't be gluttons to eat so much that they decimate their herds. And then second, the second duty was to others. Some people de uh, depended on others for their sustenance, servants and Levites in particular. Remember, the Levites weren't given territories, but, were, but served amongst the tribe uh, the tribes as priests, tending to the people's spiritual needs. And so they would have been uh, particularly vulnerable to the habits of excess that would deprive them of their rightful portion and care. And so you can't eat so much that others suffer due to your excess. Okay, fair enough. Pretty, pretty straightforward. But what's really interesting here is that the desire to eat isn't condemned. Even when the person craves meat, he isn't told to destroy the desire. But in the context of being in the promised land, amid the plenty and in the presence of God, remember, the people are going into the promised land to be with the Lord. This is going to be the place where the Lord would dwell with his people. And so in that context, in the midst of the plenty and amidst the presence of God, this desire isn't to be denied, but rather satisfied. In, in the Lord. And so for a time, the desire was restrained in the wilderness, but now the desire is satisfied in the Lord. 
Now everyone can eat with joy, knowing that they eat rightly and with care for the Lord and others. But this isn't just some strange tangent for, for Moses. Talking, he's talking about it because it pertains to right worship. Because the mundane, the everyday, has an element of the sacred. Thus, Moses isn't just concerned with how much you eat, but also the way in which you eat. Hence the requirement to not eat the blood of the animal. We heard that multiple times. Verse 23 tells us that the blood is the life. And to eat the blood would be to claim the life, but that belongs to the Lord, the only one who gives life and death. And so again, it's about giving the Lord what is his. But do you see that this requirement cuts across both the informal and the formal settings? Normally, when you would slaughter an animal, the blood would be taken and thrown on the altar. And that's the formal setting. But here in the informal setting, we need to take care with the blood as well. Everything you do, even something as mundane as preparing and cooking meat, is governed by our worship of the Lord. Why? Because of 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And then Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so, in short, everything that we do is a part of our worship of the Lord. Everything. And because our worship is so life-encompassing, we can see that the second commandment really does, in fact, flow out of the first commandment. So look with me at verses 29 through 13, uh, verse 5. And again, we have an idolatry, uh, a warning against idolatry, the same warnings we've heard time and again in Deuteronomy up to this point. So starting in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell uh, in their land, take care that you are not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I, may, uh, that I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let's go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk before the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the passage goes on to command the people destroy the ones leading them away from the Lord, regardless of relationship or number. So family is no haven. And even if a whole city turns, everyone and everything would be destroyed. And the reasons these measures, uh, the reason for these measures is summarized in chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. None of these devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion upon you and multiply you as, you as he swore to your fathers. 
if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I'm commanding you today, doing and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. By now, the penalties for idolatry should almost be second nature to us. Like, we've heard it so many times. The command to destroy the Canaanites and their, alt- and their idols. The only difference here is that now the Israelites are the ones in the crosshairs. And that's not very new either because the Lord has said that time and again too. Don't, be, don't become like them because then I'll have to treat you like them. Which is to say I'll destroy you completely too. And I think this reminder against idolatry serves two functions. The first is it repeats something that a forgetful people need to remember. The Israelites and us too, uh, if we're being honest, aren't too great at remembering and obeying the Lord's commands. And so it doesn't hurt to set, set it before them yet again. But I think more importantly, it cements that the commandments are connected. The second commandment flows out of the first commandment because we worship what we love. We worship what we love. Our worship reflects our priorities, our desires, and where our heart's treasure is. Only if we are truly fulfilling the first commandment can we, have, can we hope to worship the Lord in accordance with the full scope of the second commandment. And I think it also highlights just how tenuous and fragile our worship really is. The bar for the first commandment is pretty high. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Anything less, you're breaking it. So it's pretty high. But when it comes to the second commandment, I think we can do it, right? How hard could it be? Destroy idols? Worship only God where, only where God wants me to? Seems pretty simple. Don't make any gra- graven images. That's pretty easy, and I think I can handle that. But it's not. Why? Because proper worship flows out of the first commandment. And so any little bit of idolatry in my heart is really, truly a graven image that I've made for myself, that, I have, that I'm making for myself for worship. And so any transgression of the first commandment, second, second commandment is broken too. And so remember when we said that the rules for proper worship were avenues of grace so that sinful people could worship the Lord God? Well, that avenue through the, through the law is pretty narrow with big drops on both sides. And it's not just that it's narrow too, but that the bridge that holds up the avenue is made of like balsa wood, it's hard. It will collapse at a, at a moment's notice. Why? Because we're not little dainty people walking across it. We are weighed down by our sin. We have a heavy burden of sin. It's e- this way is easily shattered as we lumber the heavy loads of our sin across it toward the Lord. You ever make a balsa wood bridge in like elementary school? Or one like made of like gumdrops and like toothpicks? How does it work? Not, not that great, right? It doesn't really hold up a whole lot. Why? Because it's not engineered to actually be a bridge. It plays at being a bridge. In the same way, the law isn't made for us to make a way for us to come to the Lord. The way that it provides is so difficult and narrow that it's practically no way at all. No one with the weight of sin on their hearts could possibly fulfill it. And this is how this passage, I think, points us to Jesus. Jesus is the true fulfiller of the second commandment. 
He understands that men must come to God on God's terms. The how, the where, the when, and the why all have to be according to God's standards, and we don't measure up. There have to be layers upon layers of protection for us, but not for him. He didn't have the weight of sin upon him. He was perfect, able to walk the tightrope demanded by the law as if it was a giant avenue, and to do it without fail. And that holiness, that perfection, and that purity made him worthy of true worship without filter. He alone fulfilled the first commandment. He alone obeyed all the Lord's commands when it came to worship. His heart was set on the Lord wholly and completely, and because of that, he is able to worship in spirit and in truth without an ounce of idolatry in his heart. And that same Jesus chose to take on the consequences of our idolatry. He chose to be devoted to destruction for idolaters like us. And so he hung up on that tree and received the full measure of God's wrath against us. Do you see how he functions as our sacrificial lamb? Do you see how something like eating meat even points to the need for bloodshed for the remission of sins? The blood which has the life in it is not to be consumed, but given to the Lord by spilling it on the earth. It is by his blood, by his very life, we are sustained and redeemed. But the life he gave is not the life that we receive. For he did not stay dead. Rather, he rose in newness of life, with resurrection life. For he, swall- and for he swallowed up sin and death by this resurrection life that is wholly different and new. It is that life, that life that does not end that he gives to us. It is a life that is the reward for loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength in all times, in every place, in every way. It is the reward for worshiping the Lord truly. And so in our union with Christ, we are made new. Our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. And the the law is no longer written on stone, but written on on our very hearts. And so now the way of worship of the Lord isn't narrow and difficult. It's not the path of the law. Now it is by the grace and mercy of Jesus, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by him. There's a reason why the curtain was torn when he died. Now we get to worship with Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Now we don't have to sacrifice. We don't have to go through all the hoops. We get to be in his very presence. Why? Because we have Jesus. Hebrews 12 says that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. True worship brings joy and rejoicing. And Jesus' joy was not only to love, obey, and submit to his Father, but to redeem you and me. You and I are his joy. That was the joy that was set before him, the redemption of those that he has loved since before the foundation of the world. 
So how does this change the way in which we come to worship? It changes absolutely everything about the way in which we come to worship. Why? Because we have him. We have him. And when we have him, we have an abundance that flows up out of us and brings us joy. No longer do we want what we want, but we want what he wants. I just was in Sunday school. We were in um, 1 John chapter 3, and we were talking about what it looks like to be rooted in Christ. And we see true fruit, the fruit of the Spirit coming out of those that are rooted in Christ. And those that are rooted in Christ have an abundance, and so they're able to give out of that abundance. But when we are rooted in selfishness, we become like sinners. We become like Cain. We become like all those that take and take and take. Why? Because they have need. And so as we live our life, when we have the gospel, we are able to not be, we are enabled to not be takers, but to be givers. We are able to serve and love one another. Why? Not because we have to, but because we can Because we have far more than what we could possibly imagine. It becomes an expression of worship, our care for one another. And so worship is not confined to what we do here on Sunday morning as we listen and as we sing and as we pray, but it is given to everything that we do. Why? Because we have an abundance in Christ and Jesus is there with us in every way, in every time, in every place. And so our whole life becomes an expression of worship and of joy. Why? Because Jesus is here with us. He is here with us, and he has made a wide and sturdy way in his own blood for us. Think about that. We need to pray. Father God, we confess that we come uh, to you and live our lives as if you aren't there. That we go each do what is right in our own eyes. But Lord, you have sent Jesus, your son, that we might not continue to do life our own way. But that transcends by the power of the Holy Spirit Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the great abundance that we have in you. The Lord Jesus, who was slain for us. Lord, may that abundance flow out of us in a spiritual act of worship that is a life that is. And so, Lord, transform us that we might worship you truly and completely and wholly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.